John 7, verse 24. These are the words of Christ now. Stop judging according to outward appearance, but on the contrary, judge according to righteous judgment. Our passage today ends with this admonition from Christ. We must also start with these words, though, because like all Scripture, this passage does nothing less than reveal the person of Christ, expose the dire condition of humanity, and point us to the hope of salvation offered through the Gospel. Jesus' command in this final verse is directed to a large crowd of people who had heard these teachings from his own lips, but they did not respond correctly with righteous judgment. Instead, they rejected his true identity and refused to acknowledge the sinfulness of their own hearts, willfully persisting in unbelief. By God's grace, we will not make the same mistake. We will see Christ for who he actually is, and we will see us for who we are. If you're saved, Hear these truths rightly to the working out of your salvation. And if you're not saved, hear the call to repent and believe this morning. Be determined not to judge Christ or yourself superficially, but on the contrary, as the verse says, judge according to righteous judgment. Now, this passage is full with insights on the problem of unbelief. It answers questions we've all probably asked before. Questions like, why don't my family members believe in Christ? Or why don't my neighbors or my friends or my coworkers believe? Or perhaps even, why don't I believe? Not only does it answer those questions, but it directs us to the remedy for our unbelief. So three things this passage reveals to us that I hope we can all see today is one, the nature of our unbelief, two, the source of our unbelief, and three, the solution to our unbelief. So the nature of it, the source of it, and the solution to it. Let's look first at the nature of our unbelief. Please turn your attention to verses 1 through 5. Unbelief is the sinner's response to Christ. Initially, we see this demonstrated as the response to Christ's miracles. Starting in verse 1. After these things, these things being all the events recorded in chapter 6. If you recall from the healing at the pool in Bethesda back in chapter 5, the Jewish leaders intended to kill Jesus because he was making himself equal with God and breaking the Sabbath in their eyes. So Jesus departed for Galilee in chapter 6, and it was during his ministry there that he did things like feed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two pickled fish, and walk on the stormy sea to his disciples, and teach on the bread of life, and on the eating of his flesh, and on the drinking of his blood. It is these things that are in view when the verse says, after these things. Continuing on, after these things... Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was not willing to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. By walking, it was meant that he was living and abiding and ministering and working in Galilee rather than in Judea. And it's also important to recognize, by the way, that that Jews here is referring to the Jewish leaders, not necessarily all the Jewish people. It's it's the Jews who wanted Christ dead back in chapter 5 and who are still seeking his life now. Verse 2, but the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near. The Feast of Tabernacles, if you don't know, was one of the seven national feasts that God ordered in Leviticus 23. And it occurred in the early autumn season, which corresponds to our September or October. The feast lasted seven days, during which all the Israelites dwelt in tents that they pitched on their roofs and in the fields and in the streets. And it was to commemorate their dwelling in tents when they were in the wilderness coming out of Egypt. 
Josephus, uh, an early Jewish historian, described it as one of the most joyous of the Jewish festivals, that there was much feasting and thanksgiving, praising God for the blessing of permanent homes and for the crop of the year. Verse 3, Therefore, in light of this occasion, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, also so that your disciples will behold the works you are doing. For no one does anything in secret and seeks to be a public figure. If you do these things, these things being the miracles he did during his ministry in Galilee, manifest yourself to the world, for not even his brothers are believing in him. Our Lord's biological brothers don't just want Jesus to go up to the feast. They're pressing him to publicly manifest himself as the Messiah, to go up as the messianic savior figure that he claims to be. This response of theirs, as verse 5 says, indicates that they did not believe in him. Because they did not see Jesus for who he is, the Christ, they thought it strange that their brother would do such great works in obscurity in the isolated, recluse territories of Galilee. Their logic is valid. If Jesus wants to be a public figure, he must act publicly. And what better occasion to show yourself to the world than this great feast where all the Jews and the nobles and the leaders would be gathered. So they exhort Jesus to reveal himself to the public so that, quote, your disciples will behold the works you are doing. The word used here for behold is the same word we get our English term theater or theatrical. They're saying that if you want to be a celebrity, Jesus, you have to get on the public stage so that the world might behold you as an audience at a show. Now, why would they say such things to our Lord? Don't they know that if he were to reveal himself as the Messiah, which he is, that the Jews would kill him because they're seeking his life? No, they didn't. They didn't because they didn't believe in him. They did not count themselves among his disciples, at least not yet. For when they say, your disciples, his brothers are implying that Christ's disciples are not here, not us, but in Judea. This request of Jesus' brothers reveals that even though they saw all these things, his mighty works in Galilee, they did not believe in him. So it is demonstrated here that the response to Christ, specifically his miraculous signs, is one of unbelief. The response to his teachings is no different. Skip over to verses 14 through 15. We'll return to the other verses momentarily, but in short, Christ goes up to the feast, but not manifestly as his brothers so suggested. In verse 14, we read that halfway through the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and was teaching. What is the response to his teaching? Verse 15, then the Jews were marveling, saying, how does this fellow know the scriptures not being educated? And their marveling is not in a good way, as it comes off in most translations. I have translated it as this fellow. It's a derogatory reference to Christ. The Jewish leaders are floored that Jesus, an uneducated man by their standards, would make himself out to the public as a qualified teacher of the scriptures. They're shocked that he would have the audacity and the arrogance to teach the crowds about the word of God, even though he's never studied it himself. And their response, the response of the Jews to our Lord's teachings is like the response of Christ's brothers to his miracles. It was one of unbelief. So then the, with respect to the nature of unbelief, we see that it is always the sinner's response to Christ as is demonstrated in this passage by the response of Christ's brothers to his miracles, his works, and the Jews' response to his teachings. It is the response to his deeds and his doctrines. Unbelief is always the response to Christ. Also, these verses reveal the alternative beliefs behind our unbelief. 
Whenever we don't believe something, it is always because we believe something else. If we don't believe Jesus is the Christ, which he is, then we must believe he is someone else. The first alternative given here is that Christ is merely a good person. Verse 12, there was much whispering about him in the crowds. Indeed, some were saying that he is a good man. This opinion is especially common view even today, but it's one of the most logically invalid. Because if Jesus was not the Savior of the world he claimed to be, then he has given false hope to millions of people. He has lied to tons, and all those who have believed in him and have died for it throughout church history cost their lives for nothing. Such a man could hardly be called a good person. The other alternatives then are that he was a liar, verse 12, but others were saying, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. Or he was a lunatic. His brothers believed he was crazy for not ministering in Galilee. The Jewish leaders believed he was a ridiculous madman in verse 15. And the crowd believed he was demon-possessed, shouting in verse 20, you have a demon. Such alternative beliefs couldn't be further from Christ's true identity, identified and recognized by Peter in the previous chapter as, quote, the Holy One of God. These alternative beliefs, as we will see, are indeed faulty and unrighteous judgments. Moreover, this text has much to reveal about the characteristics of our unbelief. I see at least seven here. Let's briefly return to Christ's dialogue with his brothers. Verse 5 ends by saying that his brothers made their request because they did not believe in Jesus. Then verse 6, Therefore, Jesus says to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always opportune. The world is not able to hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Why is the world not able to hate them? It's because they themselves are unbelievers. They are of the world. So then since the world hates, hates Christ, and as unbelievers they are of the world, we observe that the first attribute of our unbelief is that it is hateful. Two, along those same lines, this passage reveals that our unbelief is murderous, as is evidenced by the way the Jewish leaders continually seek to kill Jesus in verse 1, as well as by Christ's question directed toward the unbelieving crowds in verse 19. Quote, why do you, as in you all, seek to kill me? Three, our unbelief is anger arousing. In verse 23, Christ is referring to his healing of the invalid man by the pool in Bethesda when he says, If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you enraged with me because I made a man entirely sound on the Sabbath? The word enraged literally means to be full of bile, figurative for filled with bitter, harsh, even violent anger. And such Anger is aroused by our unbelief in him. Four, our unbelief fallaciously degrades its opponents. It does not deal reasonably with arguments presented against it. Instead, it fallaciously attacks the individuals presenting the arguments rather than the arguments themselves. This is the classic ad hominem fallacy, Latin for against the man, and here is committed against the man, Jesus Christ. In verse 15, the outraged Jews degradingly interrupt how does this fellow know the scriptures not being educated? They attack the teacher rather than deal with his teachings. Five, similarly, this passage makes it clear that our unbelief is inherently illogical. This is most explicitly shown in verses 20, 22 through 23, where Christ presents an irrefutable justification for his healings on the Sabbath. The faultiness and error of their thinking is fully exposed, revealing the emptiness of unbelieving arguments. Awesome. There never, never, never exists a good reason for our unbelief. 
it is always wholly and woefully unjustifiable. It is always the product of an unrighteous judgment. And hence the command to cease such judgments in verse 24. If you can call it founded at all, it is founded only on unsound, untrue premises and invalid logic. Six, our unbelief rejects its insanity. We ourselves are insane for not believing in Christ. Yet what we observe in this section takes it a step further. In order to affirm our own insane thinking, we must believe that those who disagree with us are the insane ones. This is precisely what happens here. The sinner's projection of his own insanity onto Christ is progressively demonstrated in this passage. In verses 3 through 5, Christ's brothers reveal that he's strange for not acting publicly when it is their behavior that is unreasonable. In verse 15, the Jews call Christ mad because they see him as entirely unfit for teaching when it is they that are mad and unqualified to teach the word of God. And in verse 20, the crowd goes so far as to say Jesus is demon-possessed. And they say this because they realize it's typical of hallucinating people to think others are out to get them. But really, it is they who are disillusioned with reality. Seven, lastly, our unbelief is characterized by the inability to believe otherwise. In the first part of verse 7, Jesus said, The world is not able to hate you. He says that it is unable, that it does not have the power to hate those who are of the world. He says that it cannot do otherwise. It is not able to, implying that it is impossible for the world to change by itself. And as this is true of the world's hatred, so too is it true of the world's unbelief. In summary, this passage reveals that our unbelief is hateful, is murderous, anger arousing, that it fallaciously degrades its opponents, is inherently illogical, projects its insanity onto others, and is unable to believe any differently. Now with respect to what the scripture teaches about the nature of unbelief, we've seen thus far that it's the sinner's response to Christ, that unbeliefs, or that alternative beliefs are always behind our unbelief, and that our unbelief has the characteristics we just observed. The final thing this text reveals about the nature of unbelief is that it is universal. Every man and every woman ever born of Adam has been an unbeliever. And it is only by God's grace that we're not all still unbelieving. Notice how completely irrelevant external factors are to our unbelief. Verse 3 and verse 12, so that it does not matter if you are Jesus' biological brother or a total stranger to him, you still will not believe. And maybe it makes sense that total strangers wouldn't believe in him. Well, look at verse 5. Quote, not even his own brothers were believing in him. The fact that not even those who grew up with Christ believed in him shows that unbelieving has nothing to do with how long you've known of Christ or what your relationship status was to him or anything else like that. Also, this passage reveals that both those who were versed in the scriptures and those who were unversed in the scriptures did not believe in him. For the Jewish leaders seeking his life in verse 11 were more familiar with the Old Testament than many of us ever will be, and they did not believe. Nor did the crowd believe, who the Jews accuse in verse 49 of, quote, not knowing the scriptures. So unbelieving has nothing to do with how well you know the Bible or how little you know of the Bible. Furthermore, the fact that the crowd did not believe lends itself to a multitude of inferences. Since there is diversity in a crowd, we can conclude that all the different factors at play in that group of people were irrelevant to their unbelief because they all still didn't believe. That means if you are young, you will not believe. Or if you are old, you will still not believe. If you are a religious person, you will not believe. Or if you are irreligious, you will not believe. If you are educated, you will not believe. If you are uneducated, you will not believe. 
If you are popular and privileged, you will not believe. And if you are unpopular or poor, you will not believe. If you are sick, you will not believe. And if you are healthy, you will not believe. You see where this is going, but bear with me. You will not believe if you have a high IQ or a low IQ. You will not believe if you are experienced. You will not believe if you are inexperienced. You will not believe if you are American, Asian, or African. You will not believe if your race is an atheist. You will not believe if you were brought up in the Bible Belt. You will not believe if you grew up in a Christian church and were raised in a Christian family, nor if you were raised in a Muslim household. You will not believe if your father was a pastor or if you were baptized in your youth. You will not believe if you said a sinner's prayer and attended Sunday school every week or regularly participated in worship services. You will not believe if you are a missionary or if you are engaged in lots of ministry work. And you will not believe if you pray every day or if you read your Bible every day, and the list goes on and on and on. None of those factors matter. Our unbelief is sourced in something else. And that something else is common to all of humanity. So what is it then? If none of these factors are the cause of our unbelief, then what is? Having heard what this passage says about the nature of unbelief, let's now turn our attention to what it reveals concerning the source of our unbelief. This source is introduced to us as worldliness, by verses 5 through 7. Remember that Christ's brothers have just finished pressing him to go up to the feast manifestly as the Messiah. And verse 5 tells us this, that this is because even they did not believe in him. Therefore, verse 6, Jesus says to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always opportune. The world is not able to hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Notice the therefore at the beginning of verse 6. It indicates that the reason Christ says this is because of verse 5, because of their unbelief. In responding to their unbelief, he attributes it to the worldliness, stating that the world cannot hate them and that their time is always opportune. Once again, the world cannot hate them because they are of the world. Like likes like, and conversely, the world cannot hate Christ because he opposes the world. Additionally, Christ's time here is referring to the time he will publicly manifest himself to the world. And if he were to do that now, the Jewish leaders would kill him. As for his brothers, however, Jesus is saying that any time is fitting for the world to see who they really are, since the world has nothing against them, nor can it have anything against them, for they themselves are worldly. Unlike Christ, his brothers need not fear the authorities because the world wholeheartedly approves of them. It is this worldliness which Christ reveals in response to their unbelief. However, if we truly want to understand the source of our unbelief, we need to understand the source of belief. And that is precisely what Jesus makes known in verse 17. To put things into context, let's start at verse 14. But now halfway through the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and was teaching. Then the Jews were marveling, saying, How does this fellow know the scriptures not being educated? Therefore Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not of myself, but of him who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak from myself. So how can we know whether his teaching is is true and from God? The answer is by willing to do the will of the Father. The will of God is what God desires or what he wishes or what he wants. And Jesus is saying that our belief comes from wanting what God wants. It comes from desiring what God desires. He reveals that the source of true belief is willingly doing the will of the Father. Not only those is the source of true belief, but also the fountain of true knowledge. For it is not the word belief that Christ uses in verse 17, but the word know. Quote, If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know 
whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak for myself. The term know carries a more substantial connotation. For those who say that you can't know whether this is truly the word of God or not, they're lying to you. Christ says here, he's not talking about a blind faith, but a belief in him and his teachings that is both justified and true. In other words, belief is a product of righteousness. Because the concept of righteousness is doing God's will from the heart. Indeed, believing in the truth, and you can hear that with a capital T, is a good and right thing to do. Because righteous people do righteous things, you will believe in the truth if you are righteous. See, genuine righteousness desires to do what God desires. And 1 Timothy 2.4 states that God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Therefore, if we're righteous, we will believe in Him, for that is what God desires. It's in righteousness that we obey the command of God's will in verse 24 to stop judging Christ and his teaching superficially and to instead make righteous judgments which compel us to believe. The passage reveals, though, that we are all unrighteous. And it does so through five implicit indictments against us. First, as previously noted, we are of the world like the brothers of Jesus. Verse 7, the world is not able to hate you, referring to us apart from Christ, but it hates me because I testify against it that its works are evil. Since we too are of the world, this makes us out to be workers of evil and haters of, of Jesus. In our flesh, we hate Christ. And this is, an especially, this is especially disturbing in light of the fact that we, much like Christ's brothers, have known much about him, or at least most of us have. We've heard of his perfect love and his kindness and his humility and his grace and his wondrous works and so on, but we've hated him nonetheless. We are of the world. Two, the second indictment is like it, that we have hated him unto death. Our hatred reaches such a pitch that we literally want to murder Jesus. That's why he asked the crowd in verse 19, why do you, you all, want to kill me? That's a heartbreaking question. And there's, there's no answer to it. He's not only innocent, but he's worthy of so much more than anything that we could give to him. This is, though, the desire of our flesh. And we carried it out physically, and we continue to do it spiritually. Jeremiah said in chapter 17, verse 9, that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? It's true that the depths of the darkness of our hearts is unfathomable. And understand that I'm blasphemous in teaching these things because I cannot even come close to communicating the gravity of the evil of sin. Third indictment, we seek our own glory. In reference to his teaching being from God, Jesus says in verse 18, that the one speaking from himself seeks his own glory, but the one seeking the glory of him who sent him. We are those who speak from themselves and from our own authority and from our own identity rather than that of our sender. And thus we seek our own glory and we seek it unrighteously because no glory is ours to have. All credit and all praise and all honor always belongs to God and to God alone. For all good things in our lives and in ourselves come from Him, not from us. Thus no praise is due our name. We are responsible only for that which is sinful. Moreover, the glorification and magnification of our own character and nature is evil because our character and nature is evil. The world approves of us when we reveal ourselves for who we are, as they did to Christ's brothers. 
Such self-magnification comes naturally to our flesh. In verses 3 through 4, Jesus' brothers thought it obviously right for him to manifest himself before the eyes of men. This is their nature. Fourth, we have broken his law. Jesus introduces the law of Moses in verse 19 for a couple of reasons, one of which is to demonstrate our unrighteousness. Verse 19, Has not Moses given the law to you, Jesus says, and not one of you does the law? No one has kept the law. And we read the Ten Commandments this morning in the prayer of confession. An honest evaluation of ourselves proves us to be nothing less than prolific criminals. Because we have all lied, and we have all stolen, and we have all committed adultery in our hearts by lusting. We have all murdered our brothers spiritually in anger. We have all coveted. We have all disobeyed our parents. We have all worshipped idols, and we have all despised the Sabbath. And we certainly have all not loved God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that's the short list. That's just Ten Commandments. Not only have we failed to keep all of the law, though, but this passage shows that we've never done anything but break the law. For the law requires that we do all these things from a sincere heart. Verse 17 speaks of willingly doing the will of God. And apart from Christ, we have never obeyed God out of our love for Him and out of our desire to please Him. All our righteous deeds apart from Christ have been motivated by something else, by something selfish, and hence even they are always sinful. The so-called emission side of things is just as ugly. For in addition to our lives of perpetual transgression, we have forsaken what is righteous. This is revealed when Jesus rebukes the crowds in verse 23 for their response to his healing on the Sabbath, saying, If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you enraged with me because I made a man entirely sound on the Sabbath? Indeed, it is so much more righteous for the poor invalid man to be healed on the Sabbath than for the letter of the law to be followed at the expense of men. Our whole lives, apart from Christ, we have done nothing but commit crimes against him and forsake righteousness. Yet not only do we sin in these ways ourselves, but we approve of those who practice the same. Verse 7, the world is not able to hate you, because being of the world, we approve of our own, of those who also break the law, and sin against the living God. This revelation echoes Paul's words in Romans 1. He writes, verse 28, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God or to believe in Him, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. He later quotes Old Testament poets and prophets when he reviews the case, saying that there is no one righteous, not even one, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We have not kept the law. 
The fifth and final indictment in this passage is that we have judged superficially and sinfully. Hence the command in verse 24 to, quote, stop judging according to outward appearance, but on the contrary, judge according to righteous judgment. We have been like the crowds in verse 12 who blasphemously believe Jesus to be a liar or a lunatic or something other than the almighty sovereign Lord that he is. Summarily, we see from these verses that we are all unrighteous. For we are of the world, our works are evil, we have hated God, we have broken his law, and we have judged sinfully. Now these charges come directly from the scriptures, the words of Christ. And notice what the latter part of verse 18 says about him. It says that he is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Because he is true and his judgment is always perfectly just, these charges from him are actually proofs of our guiltiness. Because these indictments are made by the judge who is true and who cannot lie, nor can he judge falsely. Therefore, knowing that belief is a product of righteousness, we see that the problem behind our unbelief is that we are not righteous. Believing in Christ is righteous, but since we are totally unrighteous, we cannot believe in him. Verse 17 says, If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak for myself. We do not want to do God's will. Thus, we do not know and cannot know whether the teaching of Christ is true. In fact, we desire to do the opposite of God's will. Instead of obeying him, we do whatever is most hateful and offensive and harmful and hurtful to him. He has revealed his will to us through his law. And so Christ says in 19, Has not Moses given you the law? But then he says that not one of you does the law. And not one of us does the will of God. So then, because we are unrighteous, we cannot, quote, know whether the teaching is from God or whether Jesus speaks from himself. Indeed, we cannot stop judging according to outward appearance and instead judging according to righteous judgment as Christ commands us in verse 24. Because we are totally depraved and we cannot make a righteous judgment. On our own, we cannot see him for who he is and we can't see ourselves for who we are and we can't make correct or righteous judgments. We cannot believe he is the Christ. We cannot do the righteous thing of repenting and believing in him because we are sinful through and through and through. Thus in Matthew 16, when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter correctly replies in verse 16, quote, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. It was not revealed to Peter by flesh and blood because no man can make a righteous judgment about Christ apart from God. In fact, man cannot do anything good apart from God. We are capable only of sin and can't do anything but judge Christ unrighteously as the crowds did, quote, according to outward appearance. Apart from the grace of God, we will believe he is a good man or a great deceiver or a lunatic. We will never believe in him as the Messiah And we will never righteously turn from our sins to be saved. We're unrighteous. And this is the source of our unbelief. As an aside, that's why we don't labor continuously in apologetics when we evangelize to people. Because unbelief isn't an intellectual problem. As we've just seen here, it's a spiritual problem. We don't believe because we're unrighteous. Now in light of this source, I want you to see the danger of our unbelief. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. 
These verses are so terrifying. And if I, if I could just get one thing across to you this morning, it would be this, that if you do not actually believe in Jesus, you really will die forever. It will happen. We so do not believe this enough. But the one who is true tells us that not only will we be, de- will we be deprived of all the glories of heaven, but that the wrath of God will remain on us forever. Horrifying. The wrath of God is incomprehensible. It is infinitely worse than the worst pains we have ever experienced here. Think about what is the most painful thing you've ever experienced here? Maybe a terrible illness or childbirth or severe injury or loss of a loved one. Now just imagine that one thing lasting forever. Forever. It never stops. It never ceases. It never lets up. There's no end in sight. It only intensifies as time goes on. Now, that's just one thing, and it's an unbearable thought. Take all of your painful physical and emotional experiences and imagine experiencing all those at once, forever, and you're still not even close to the torments of hell. This, though, is a present reality for billions and billions of people, and it will be for billions more for all of eternity. It would be one thing if it ceased eventually, but it doesn't, and it can't. And this is the inescapable fate of all those who do not believe in Christ. The vast majority of people do not. Why is the punishment so great? Is it simply because they did not believe in Jesus? Refusing to believe in him is sinful, yes, but that's only a small part of it. We are punished for the source of our unbelief, and that is all our unrighteousness. Verse 19. Not one of you does the law. And then Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26 says, Cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. All our crimes against God we will be held accountable for on that last day. And because he is a perfectly just judge, and as verse 18 says, quote, is true with no unrighteousness in him, he will give us exactly what we deserve. And eternal hell is exactly what we deserve. The wrath of God is so unbearable because the offenses are so unbearable. And the offenses are so unbearable because of who they are against, the living, holy God. As a matter of fact, the offenses are of infinite magnitude, being against an infinite God. And so the just retribution must be infinite as well. I hope you feel the urgency of this. Do you see the indescribable danger of our unbelief? When we read this passage here, It seems hard to tell that because of their unbelief, Christ's brothers and the crowds at the feast are in immediate danger of the fires of hell. That the only thing in between them and an eternity of unfathomable torment is a little bit of time that God's supplying by His grace. We don't see this easily in the passage because we do the very thing verse 24 pleads with us not to do. We, quote, judge according to outward appearance don't make the same mistake we need to heed the warning of christ and to find at all costs the solution to our unbelief and there is a solution there's only one but god has graciously and completely revealed it to us through his word even through this very passage so let's now look to see what this wonderful piece of scripture reveals about the solution to our unbelief The problem of unbelief is that we are unrighteous. 
Thus, in order to believe, we must be made righteous. This is impossible for us, though, as totally unrighteous people. We are, not, we are unable to do anything righteous, let alone convert our hearts from evil to good and wipe away our criminal record. You cannot go to church enough or read your Bible enough or pray enough or give enough money to the poor or do enough good things to accomplish this. Not to mention that all those good things are sinful apart from Christ anyway because they're done from selfish motives to begin with. You must not have any trust in any of those things at all to save you. Unrighteous people cannot be righteous. And one thing this passage certainly demonstrates is that we are all unrighteous. However, the same truths, the same truths that reveal our unrighteousness reveal the righteousness of another person. And the contrast couldn't be more extreme. In verse 19, Jesus declares that, quote, not one of you does the law. But in the verse before, he speaks of himself saying, quote, the one seeking the glory of him who sent him, God the Father, this one is true, and no unrighteousness is in him, it's referring to himself. The difference here between our total unrighteousness, our not keeping the law, and his perfect righteousness, him seeking the glory of God, is intentionally sharp. These same verses which expose the sinful source of our unbelief prove the righteousness of Jesus. And here's what I mean. The verse we just read states that Christ seeks, his, seeks the glory of the Father rather than his own glory. The glorification of God, too, is what God desires. It is his will. And since Christ glorifies God perfectly, he does the will of God perfectly, which is perfect righteousness. Second, verse 18 says that he is true. Verse 18, this one, Jesus, is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Some translations say no falsehood is in him, but John would have likely used a different word for that. However, there is no falsehood in him because no unrighteousness is in him. And unrighteousness is the source of falsehood. Christ is true. Third, he willingly lives in perfect accordance with God's sovereign plan. This is demonstrated in verses 1 and 6. In verse 6, Jesus says to his brothers, My time has not yet come. It's time to reveal himself to the world. It was not in God's plan for Christ to manifest himself yet. And this is both what Jesus did and what he desired to do. For verse 1 says that he was not willing to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. It was not God's plan for Jesus to be delivered into the hands of the Jews yet. And this is what Christ willingly lived in accordance with. Yes, he did go up to the Feast of Tabernacles in full compliance with the law, but he did not go up as his brothers assumed he should. He did not go up manifesting himself publicly. Instead, we read in verse 9 that, quote, having said these things to them, Jesus remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not manifestly, but as in secret. The emphasis here is on the manner of his going up. It is stated first negatively by not manifestly, which is the exact opposite of what his brothers said to do. And then it's stated positively by as in secret. He went up like this because it was not his time. And Christ always, always lives willingly in perfect accordance with God's sovereign plan. Fourth, Jesus is not of this world. He says in verse 7, The world is not able to hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. This is why the world hated him. Not only because Jesus wasn't of the world, but because he fiercely opposed it in his righteousness. Fifth, contrary to the sinful judgment of the people, our Lord practiced the law perfectly. They accused him of breaking the Sabbath when he healed the invalid man by the pool in Bethesda. And Jesus answered them, stating in verse 21, 
One work I did, and you are all marveling. Marveling not in a good sense, but in the same way that the Jews were. 22, consider this. Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the patriarchs. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you enraged with me because I made a man entirely sound on the Sabbath? His argument here is valid and sound and irrefutable. For one, his work of healing required much less work than the work of circumcision. Two, because circumcision came from the patriarchs, it is more ancient than the Sabbath, which came from Moses. And since circumcision comes before the Sabbath, it takes precedence over the Sabbath. And the same is true of love. Love is more ancient than both circumcision and the Sabbath. Thus Christ's loving act of healing the poor, invalid man by the pool in Bethesda takes precedence over their Sabbath regulations. Third, the goodness of Christ's healing is superior to the goodness of circumcision. For circumcision is a benefit to only one part of the body, whereas Christ's work, quote, made a man entirely sound. There is more that will be sufficient for now. Christ has not only kept the law, but he has practiced the law perfectly in all of its facets. Last but not least, Jesus' judgment is perfect. His righteousness is additionally proved by his perfect obedience and his capacity to obey the command in verse 24. So this passage vindicates Christ's righteousness. He judges perfectly. He practices the law perfectly. He is not of this world. He lives in perfect accordance with God's sovereign plan. He is true, and he seeks the glory of God. It is because of Christ's righteousness, because he, quote, perfectly wills to do the will of God, verse 17, that Christ perfectly believes in God. Because he's perfectly righteous, he perfectly believes in God. And why is it so important here that we see the righteousness of Christ? It's because the gospel, the good news of the Bible, is this, that the righteousness of Christ counts for us. Jesus is our righteousness. His righteousness is credited to our account. We are clothed in this perfect righteousness of his. So when God sees us, he sees us as blameless and as innocent and as holy as his own son. Christ's righteousness is our righteousness and hence it's the solution, and hence it's the solution sorry, to our unbelief. This was the will of the one who sent Christ, God the Father. And Jesus willingly did God's will perfectly, even though it meant his own destruction. Verse 8, Jesus tells his brothers, You all go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, because my time has not yet reached its fullness. It was not yet time for Christ to reveal himself to the world, so Jesus did not go up to this feast manifestly, as his brothers recommended. However, there is an emphasis here on this feast. For there is another feast that Christ would go up to, publicly manifesting himself as the Messiah. That feast, though, was not the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the Feast of Passover. Roughly six months later, when the time described here reached its fullness, Jesus publicly manifested himself to the world as the Messiah. John 12, verse 23. This is before the Passover feast now. Jesus declared, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And it is in that chapter, Jesus explains to his disciples that he must be lifted up on a cross to die for the sins of many. He reveals himself as the Passover lamb, the perfectly pure lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world and be slaughtered in our place, our substitutionary atonement. All the wrath that we deserve for our unrighteousness, God poured out on his son so that we might be saved 
so that our just judgment might pass over us and fall on him instead. This punishment was the full equivalent of our eternal hell. And by what means did God punish his son? It was at the hands of the Jews. Jesus said in verse 7, The world hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. And Christ's public manifestation in Judea gave way to this world's most evil of works and the consummation of its hatred described in this verse. And yet God, God worked it out for our salvation. Jesus, who in verse 1, quote, was not willing to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him, was delivered in the hands of these Jewish leaders and into the hands of the crowd that he asked in verse 19, quote, why do you seek to kill me? And it was through their most unrighteous judgment and unrighteous wrath, verse 24, that God punished his son for their unrighteousness, for their crimes, for their, quote, breaking of the law in verse 19. And all this so that they might be saved from the wrath of his righteous judgment. Isaiah 53 from verses 4 and 5, we read, He was pierced, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Surely our pain he himself bore and our sufferings he carried. Jesus paid the penalty for our crimes against God in full. He takes our place. He is our substitute. Our unrighteousness is upon him and his righteousness is upon us. All our sin is credited to his account and his willingly doing of the will of God is credited to ours. Our legal status of perfect disobedience is imputed to him and his legal status of perfect obedience is imputed to us. And this great exchange, this miracle of grace, renders us righteous in Christ. In verse 17, Jesus said, If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak for myself. Christ knows the truth, and Christ truly believes in God because of his righteousness. Therefore, because we have his righteousness, we truly believe in God as well. His righteousness is the source of his belief, and through the gospel, it has become the source of our belief as well. Truly, it is the only solution for our unbelief, because there is no one else righteous by God, and there is no other means by which we can attain God's righteousness except through Christ. Now, I want to speak briefly for a moment on the many benefits that accompany this belief we have through the righteousness of Christ. They are innumerable. This genuine faith in him functions as the means by which we are saved ultimately and presently. Thus, it is a gateway to infinite blessings for us. Ultimately, we are granted salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus. It's the means by which we are saved. Romans 3.22 This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So this righteousness comes by means of faith in Jesus. And then presently, this great salvation is worked out in our lives through the trust we have in him. And don't be mistaken, when we're talking about saving belief in Jesus, we're talking about personally trusting in him. Because we trust Christ, the teacher, we trust his teaching, which is the word of God. And the more we believe the truths revealed in his word, the more our hearts are changed accordingly, and the more we become the righteous individuals he has made us through the cross. And of course, the more righteous we become, the more we glorify God and the righter our relationship with him becomes. This faith, then, is a channel through which our restoration flows. It's the means by which we fulfill our purpose in life to glorify him and the means by which our deepest longings to please Christ, to please God, are satisfied through him. Our hearts 
are genuinely changed so that, as it says in verse 17, we willingly do the will of God so that we desire what God desires and we want what he wants. We keep his commands out of loving obedience to him. These things and many more continually increase in measure until we come into his presence and they continue to do so for all of eternity. It's a glorious cycle that the more we trust in Christ, the more righteous we become, and the more righteous we become, the more we trust in Christ. Furthermore, since the righteousness of Christ completely reconciles us to God, we now have a right relationship with our Father and have been adopted into his family and are able to enjoy all of the intimacy and all of the proximity that we were made to have with him. And symbolically speaking, I think it's fitting that Christ did not fully manifest himself at the Feast of Tabernacles. Because God was not fully manifested in the tabernacle in the wilderness, nor was he fully manifested in the temples that replaced it. His perfect and final manifestation was in Jesus, who through the work of the gospel set the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men. And if we truly have faith in him, then that means that the very Spirit of God dwells in us. And I could go on for hours about the infinite blessings of communion with him and the unlimited power for righteousness which now abides within us. It's so glorious. And I'm amazed that I can even speak of such things like this, of the sin and the wrath and the love and the sacrifice and the redemption, all extreme and all real. And so above and beyond is the grace of God. The Jews marveled. They marveled in their arrogant, pride-filled conceit. But these things truly are marvelous. As I was writing this, We've sung this hymn before, it came to mind. The hymn writer says, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide, what can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, Freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? The text that we have here closes with an admonition. It is verse 24. Jesus says, Stop judging according to outward appearance, but on the contrary, judge according to righteous judgment. So ask yourself, will you trust in him for who he is? Will you receive his grace today or will you persist in your unbelief which will lead to your condemnation? The command is to stop. It's to cease what we're doing now which is judging Christ and his words superficially, basing our beliefs on him on prejudices, presuppositions, appearances, the views of others, and everything else like that. We've all done this. So we need to confess our sin and turn to Christ. As verse 24 says, on the contrary, judge according to righteous judgment. We must abandon our falsehoods and render a righteous verdict about him. See him for who he is, the Christ, the God who loved you so much that he died for you. And trust in him and him alone to save you. Verse 18 says that he is true and no unrighteousness is in him. He saves everybody who trusts in him because he who is true is perfectly trustworthy. This is the response to the gospel. Hear it. Turn from your sinful ways and your sinful beliefs and trust only in Jesus. And then out of your love for him, you will willingly do the will of God and seek his glory rather than seek your own glory. 
The same is true if you're saved and you do have a right relationship with him through Christ already. Grow in your trust in him and continue in repentance that your salvation might be worked out even now. Pursue righteousness in Christ and examine your walk with him. Ask yourself, to what degree are you seeking his glory? Or how much of what you do and what you say and what you think and what you want is for your own glory rather than his? How fervently are you keeping his law? Ask yourself these things. Know him more for who he actually is. Repent and believe all the more. The evidence that we've truly repented and believed is that we're continuing to do so now. However, since making a righteous judgment and trusting in Christ is a righteous thing, we have seen that it is impossible for you to do this as an unrighteous sinner. We cannot, even though you must believe in Christ, you cannot do this on your own. Hence the doctrine that regeneration precedes your faith in Christ. We are commanded to trust in Christ. But if we trust in him, it is only because God has first made us righteous. Now this, this doesn't negate the fact that you must turn from your sin and you must make the righteous judgment of trusting in Christ. You must do that. And if you have yet to do so, I implore you with, with everything I have to do so today because you have absolutely no idea when God will demand your life from you. For all you know, you could stand before him this evening or even this afternoon and apart from believing in Christ, his wrath absolutely will remain on you because you will stand in your unrighteousness and he is perfectly just. And so repent and believe. Be saved from your sin now and from your sin forever. Hear God proclaim the good news to you this morning and don't make the same mistake that every single unbelieving sinner who has gone before you has made. Because the consequences, the consequences are unspeakably grave. If just, if just one of those doomed souls could come back and speak to you today, they would urge you with all of their might to keep this closing command of Christ, to make a right judgment about yourselves and about Him. Understand, though, that if you do repent and you do believe, it is only because God first regenerated your dead, unrighteous heart. And so glorify his name for that. All right, let's close. We ask, Lord, that if there are any of us that do not truly believe in you, that you would make us righteous now, that you would regenerate us now, Breathe life into us, Lord, so that we can believe in you and we can be saved and we can enjoy all of these blessings which you pour out on us through your faith. Please, Lord, be most glorified in saving us. Don't let any of us leave without truly knowing you. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to reveal yourself to us, that you would continue to increase our faith in you, that you might increase our righteousness so that we can live lives that are the most glorifying to you and we can keep your law out of a sincere heart. Make it our desire and our will and what we want most be to please you. We pray all of this in your name and for your own glory. Amen.